0: Today is May 1st, 2015, and my guest is Eric Topol. He is the director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute and professor of genomics at the Scripps Research Institute, and a lot more. He seems to be a very busy man, yet he has somehow found time for his latest book, The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine Is In Your Hands. Eric, welcome back to Econ Talk. Oh, Russ, it's great to be with you again. Thanks. Now, your book's about the potential democratization of medicine, as you call it. Uh, what do you mean by the democratization of medicine? Uh, what, uh, what might be changing in the doctor-patient relationship?
1: Uh, totally changing. That is, uh, it's a flip. It's a great inversion of medicine. Uh, I mean, democratization is available to all, but this is about getting each individual's information uh, to himself or herself it's about having the same medical capabilities anywhere there's a mobile signal, anywhere in the world. Uh, so it, it is democratization at many different levels, but it's really putting each individual uh, in charge of their health care.
0: Uh, what has changed so far? And we're going to talk a lot about what is in, proce- in the process of changing. But uh, you point to the flow of data and information itself Uh, What is changing, what has changed, uh, and why is that so important?
1: Well, there are several moving parts right now, so it's actually pretty uh, extraordinary. But uh, the smartphone uh, is center to all this, and that is that it's now capable through a smartphone to generate high-grade medical data, um, and it includes lots of sensor vital sign data, but virtually any physiologic metric of a human being, uh, and add to that doing all your labs through your smartphone and doing a good portion of the physical exam through the smartphone. Um, and no less the ability to summon a doctor um, through your phone, even to come to your house uh, or wherever you are. So that is, I think, um, uh, the principal thing is this mobile medicine, um, re- remarkably high uh, computing power. Uh, and then supported by a digital infrastructure with cloud supercomputing and pervasive connectivity. So all these things coming together, this technological um, quantum leap is what's really the the underpinning of the change of medicine.
0: And you really focus on and hammer on this idea that in the current world, up until very recently, uh, the medical uh, establishment had my data and often wouldn't share it with me. And this technological innovation is potentially going to reverse that. Uh, talk about what has uh, in the past been the doctor-patient relationship with respect to information, how that, that's, that can change.
1: Yeah, that's a really important issue, Russ. Um, I did a lot of research because I didn't know where this all came from. I said, why, why do doctors and hospitals own your data? And in 50 states of the United States, 49 of them, except for New Hampshire, uh, hospitals or doctors own your data. I said, well, how, where, where does that come from? So it, it basically, uh, I traced it um, through a lot of research. It, it really is due to paternalism. Uh, and it goes back, of course, to even before Hippocrates, well, 400 B.C. and long before that. So... Doctors have thought that uh, patients uh, would not be able to handle having their own data and therefore they should own it, doctors and hospitals, health systems. And that's a completely wrong model because today you can generate terabytes of data of your, on your own, uh, which is going gr- to markedly override whatever little data there is in your electronic record. So the ability for people to generate their own data is a driving force for why the system that we have today, where people pay for medical services and don't even have any records, and they have to beg to get records or pay uh,
0: to get the records, that is not going to be sustainable uh, in the future. I want to focus on the paternalism for a little bit. Um, uh, you know, we um, we've talked in on this program about end of life issues and the issue of withholding information from a patient for, quote, the patient's own good. And uh, you talk about how really bizarre that is and how, in your experience and uh, many people's experience, relatives, loved ones, or yourself weren't told information about your health that the doctor had um, because they thought they knew better than you did about what to do with it.
1: Yes, Exactly. And I, I think this is something that, uh, not all people would want to give that up. I mean, some like to be suppressed and controlled, uh, and have, you know, full doctor autonomy. But as it turns out, every consumer survey that's been done in recent times has suggested that 80%, even up to 90% of people want their data and want to have a lot more say in how their healthcare and, and medicine moves forward, and they feel fully capable of uh, having their notes, which they seventy percent can 't get today it 's amazing they get their office
0: notes you 're talking about uh, the stuff jo- you 're talking about the stuff that the doctor jots down while you 're talking about your problems right
1: yeah, but you know today, of course, mostly it 's keyboards and not jotting, but rather typing yep. uh, clicking clicking yeah and uh, not even making eye contact so. That almost more than two-thirds of doctors are still today on, in the United States will unwilling to give those notes to the patients because they feel that that, for, for lots of reasons, one is that they created the note, so it's their note. Um, another is that medical legal issues, uh, another is, well, there may be some things in a note that the patients would be offended by or get anxious about, but there have been studies, Russ, and particularly a big one uh, called Open Notes that completely uh, overturned these preconceived notions about how patients couldn't handle having their notes. And in fact, that whole project is going on with our notes because all the doctors and patients loved having uh, the patients getting their notes. And that's one of the Many pieces of this change, this democratization uh it's an unstoppable uh, inevitable and and very profound change
0: uh, in medicine well, as an economist, I look at that um that note uh, ownership issue uh through an economist's eyes and i you I see the the doctor likes feeling important uh right when you keep the notes, it gives you some power. Uh, it protects you potentially from legal issues. It protects you from challenge, just an unpleasant social interaction. Like, why did you write that down about me? Even if it's accurate, of course, there are things, as you say, that will make a patient uncomfortable, and they don't want to uh, necessarily have that be written down. But it is my body, and you'd think people would be open to that possibility. But it's a cultural oh, 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 change that's very hard for doctors, as you as you point out.
1: Yeah, and, and the other thing, Russ, is that um, – Patients should be editing their notes. Okay, this is a partnership, and there's a lot of mistakes, as it turns out, in notes. You know, whether it's medication or you know, factual things that are just wrong. And so, uh, when you do get to your notes and your records, you start to realize, oh my gosh, there's all these things that are wrong in here. And that's another part of the story uh, going forward is editing, um, and, and that will happen as well.
0: Well, as a teacher. Uh, Professor, anybody who's taught or coached or been a doctor, I think, knows that – or a patient knows that uh, it isn't important – what is it? It isn't important uh, what you say, it's what they hear. That's a quote from some coach I heard, and it's – obviously, they're not the same thing. We can't understand that. When you first start teaching and someone says, uh, says something they claim you've said, you say, well, but I didn't say that. But that is what they heard. That is what they heard. And so you're right. In that patient-doctor interaction, errors must be incredibly commonplace.
1: Oh, gosh, yes. And the more that that's looked at, the more um, serious the problem um, becomes. And so this is just part of the, the, the really uh, a whole different look. Up until now, these things weren't even questioned. But because um, this information uh, flow that patients are going to be generating more information uh, themselves um you know it's really it's now for example uh it was up until uh very recently you had to get a doctor's order to be able to get a lab result you know to go to a lab and now just last week uh LabCorp, one of the two largest central labs in the country, has, you know, reset the whole thing by saying, you can order your own labs. And that's a big deal. But again, you have your labs, it's, you know, you you, you can not only go to a, a LabCorp facility to do that, but very soon you'll be able to do it yourself uh, in the comfort of your home with a little kit that goes, pops, you know, into your smartphone. So that. Ability to do your own labs, to do your physical exam of yourself or your family member, your child. Uh, you know, th- this is really valuable information that's being generated uh, outside of the, the usual hallowed halls of, of medicine.
0: Yeah, and it's um, the other part of this, of course, that w- the economist thinks of is the ability to get a second opinion at a relatively uh, low cost. Uh, My mom actually confessed to me at one point recently that she didn't want to get a second opinion because it might hurt her doctor's feelings. And I said, mom, (laughs) it's your body and it's a serious condition. We're not talking about uh, something minor here. You got to get a second opinion. And I think it's very difficult in the current cultural environment for some people to challenge doctor's expertise, to demand ownership of of information. And it's going to require some kind of Cultural evolution is too strong a phrase, and it's, it's got bad overtones. But a change in our culture in how we interact with um, with medical expertise.
1: Yeah, I, that that cultural change is is a fundamental, um, no question about it. And um, I, you know, I think that because there's so many things that are happening, you know, so quickly now, um, this is um, a, a time. You know, I've been a physician. Um, and a student of medicine for three decades, and I've never seen anything move this fast, this this uh, disruptive. Um, and so I think it's actually, in many ways, it's exciting. But of course, for for so many, it's um, it's uh, anxiety provoking
0: too. Yeah, you know, I asked my doctor at in, in a physical two years ago for some particular uh, test. I can't remember which one it was now, and he he said, "Well, why would we do that? Uh, what would be the point of it?" And I said, "Well, I want to look at the level of it because." I've been doing some reading lately, and it seems to me I should be having an effect on that level from what I've been eating and exercising, and I'm curious about whether it's working. <laughs> he was you know, intrigued by that, uh, but he was not up on it. And that kind of – I think the um, – and you write about this – the empowerment of patients through Google and, and medical access online to find out stuff that people, of course, desperately do when they're in in trouble – is changing that culture already because people are taking they're challenging received wisdom in ways they didn't before because they can.
1: Right. I mean you know, in the book I get into this whole smart patient story. I mean that so many patients now are diagnosing complex things about themselves. And that's for many reasons. And it's not because they can look things up on the internet because that's not that's not new. That's been around since the nineties. And the difference is having your own data. You know, that's really, uh, looking up something and, and thinking you have that diagnosis because you saw it on the internet. So you have your own data, and, uh, that could be, uh, you know, people that have diagnosed their genetic disorders from being able to have their DNA information, and it could be, um, you know, the sensors making an important diagnoses. So this is having your own data, and going back to another point you just made previously. Um, It's not even about getting uh, a a second opinion. You can get a first opinion at any time of the day or night for the same cost as a uh, copay that most employers have. Um, You can summon a doctor, whether it be your house or right onto your screen of of your phone. And you can get a very good consult uh, for 30 or $40 um, and not only just talking to a doctor but exchanging this data like, like you were talking about, the labs that you uh, – information you had or the physical exam. So this is a whole different look because you probably know that in the U.S. the average time to wait to get an appointment for a doctor, primary care doctor, is 2.6 weeks. Now you can do that in two seconds. Yeah. Uh, so. You can't get another opinion uh, and, and so it isn't just you uh, you know interpreting all
0: your own data, but now you're talking to a uh, a licensed physician uh, immediately yeah I want to get back to that before I do though, I want you to give some examples you tell in the book of how people are using smartphones to gather those those data that we're discussing because I think for me when I first started reading about it uh i was thinking well you know my phone it can get maybe my pulse rate i can put my thumb on the on the sensor but of course people are adding things to smartphones so talk about some of the sensor and devices that are being added to smartphones talk about your experience on the airplane with a couple of patients because i think those are really um, near miraculous i was uh i was telling an emergency room doctor about it and he said well how would he Get that information. So I had to go back and read the book to remember what it was. So to tell about those, some of those stories and how smartphones are being augmented by technology.
1: Yeah, that's the key point. It isn't the smartphone itself. You have to get typically some kind of hardware uh, sensor. So like for the electric cardiogram, uh, there's now a credit card where you just put your thumbs on the back of this credit card. It's got two sensors on it. It makes a circle with your heart to get a cardiogram. Um, and of course that's just the beginning it isn't just that you can get a cardiogram it also software embedded in the app reads the cardiogram so um the the, some of the instances you're referring to is you know being on a plane and um person having chest pain, uh, unclear if it was just, you know, bad uh, gastrointestinal distress or it was a heart attack, and doing uh, a smartphone electrocardiogram and seeing absolute, uh, you know, unequivocal evidence of a heart attack and leading to an emergency landing. But it isn't just that. That's just one example, but it's prototypic because it means not just having the sensor, but it also is about getting the interpretation. So here you have a validated algorithm that it gives you an immediate um, answer as to what you're looking at. So you don't have to be medically uh, savvy or qualified. You have this uh, computer, this machine that's giving you the answer. So the electrocardiogram is one example, but there's so many others um, that uh, you can do all your vital signs, uh, blood pressure. You, you know, now it's technically feasible to do blood pressure with every heartbeat. Where you never have to press start through through your phone with a watch, or, you, or there's a device that we're testing. It's good for you. Hold it to your your forehead and it you gets your blood pressure, oxygen concentration in your blood, so you can diagnose whether you have sleep apnea um, during during uh, uh, the night of sleep. Um, so many diagnoses can be made through a variety of sensors. Um, now, another great example is the number one reason why. Uh, children are seeing pediatricians is because maybe they have an ear infection. But there's an add to the phone, pop on the phone, you can look in the child's ear, it's it's idiot proof, uh, and you can't hurt the, the child's ear, but you can get a beautiful, exquisite picture of the eardrum, and that can be read through an algorithm, whether the child has an ear infection or not, and the only reason you need a pediatrician uh, is to get a prescription for an antibiotic.
0: Yeah, so, maybe, maybe we can uh, fix that too, by the way, but that's a longer – that may be the last uh, part of the democratization of medicine, my own access to my own drugs to put in my own body. But that's another story. You didn't, you didn't, well, didn't get into in,
1: that. In, outside the U.S., by the way, Russ, you can go to the pharmacy and just buy the drug. You yeah. don't have to get a prescription. But in the U.S., that's highly regulated. And,
0: and I don't know that that's wrong. I'm just I'm just pointing out that it's not the same everywhere. Correct. Yeah, no good point. Yeah, I, I've talked about the fact I was once in a drugstore in Chile, and I realized that what's over the counter there isn't over the counter here, and you have to be a more informed consumer. And we've deadened that uh, awareness in the United States. Anything you can get a drugstore, you can probably take, you can buy over the counter is pretty weak and pretty safe. You <laughs> know, it's got pluses and minuses. Um, before we leave medical paternalism, I just want to tell a story and get your reaction I was um, that, re- that your book reminded me of. I was in the high country of Yosemite uh, near Tuolumne Meadows with my family, and we were waking up our first morning there. And my daughter, uh, coming out of the, uh, the bathroom, stumbled, uh, lost consciousness, and fell down and hurt herself. Not too badly, thank God. She didn't hurt herself in the fall, which she could have, but she just – she lost consciousness for, for a brief brief time. So we mm. the, med- the medical people came, and, and their recommendation, this is our first day on our vacation in the high country, and we're at 9,500 feet, and um, my suggestion was that she was having altitude issues and that we had to take it easy that day, and that seemed to be the right thing to do. Their recommendation was that she may have had an epileptic or some kind of seizure, some kind of fit or seizure, and that we should take her... Uh, an hour and a bit into, I think it was Truckee. I can't remember where the nearest medical facility was with some serious diagnostic tools and um, make sure that it wasn't something more serious. And my reaction was, uh, she doesn't have any history of that. There's no history of that in her family. We're at 9,500 feet. My best reading of the evidence is she's got altitude sickness and we should just either go down a little bit or just not do anything very active that day. They made me sign a f- horrifying form that basically said, I don't care about my daughter and I'm, they're giving up all responsibility and it's all on oh, me wow. naturally. Wow. And, and, and as yeah. I was signing yeah. the form, which I did, I signed the form happily because they were, they were, you know, I guess had some power to force me to, to, to take her there, I guess, or something. I don't know what it was, but you know, I, I turned to the, to the medical person and I, I can't remember what the title of the person was. And I just said, if you were her father, Would you spend the hours it would take to get this taken care of with the possibility of other tests being done that might lead to other things that are probably not relevant? Or would you just keep an eye on it, as I think I should do? And that was a very uneasy question for that person. But to me, that's always the question to the paternalist. Okay, you're acting like my father. If this were you, what would you do? So here was a person being paternal for me about my own daughter, and I just thought uh, this is nuts. And so I, we stayed. She was fine. She had yeah. altitude issues, but um, that was where I felt well, that you, hand.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think the, w- this example with your daughter brings up several important points. One is that you know we should start. The premise is patient knows best. You know that you have the context, <laughs> and uh, oftentimes the. Uh, The people evaluating a patient don't have uh, that context. And this is even more emphasized when you're having a lot of your data in the real world. So everything today in medicine has been essentially one off where you go in, get a, 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 you know, blood pressure or a lab test or whatever, and there was no context. But now you have all this data. It could be real time streaming in the real world. And in this particular example, you didn't require real time streaming you just had the context of you know this traveling high altitude and, and and all the other features where the person coming in uh to evaluate it doesn't have any context really so uh we're going to a um only then we have contextual computing add to that that can be done through um, through the data that is being gathered um which we didn't have you know, years ago. So a lot of different things, but uh, the, patient, uh, the premise is that patients are smart, and today, unfortunately, they're regarded as like the Rodney Dangerfields, as, as I wrote, you know, don't get no respect, and that's unfortunate. And not only that, but the other thing you brought up is this whole against medical advice thing, this intimidation yeah and uh you know I, I i gave an example with my uh mother in law when she was in the hospital in the book about how she almost was killed uh in the hospital and and I asked my wife to get her out of the hospital but my wife and uh you know the mother in law father in law they they all felt you know they couldn't do it because that would be challenging um the doctors and uh, that isn't right and this, is, um, this isn't right. This is why you know, the call for a medical emancipation, that's where we need to be headed.
0: I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to reflect on on it personally. Um, I'll lead in with another story. I, I knew someone once who was, who was at Stanford who was visiting to get a, a heart valve replacement. This is in the mid-'80s. And uh, she was given a um, – at the time, maybe it's still true, there was a choice between getting a pig's heart valve – and I think a plastic one or some synthetic one. And this was her second one because the first one, which was a, the pig valve, had worn out. And, of course, having a heart valve replacement is not a lot of fun. So she, right. t- with trepidation, asked the doctor if maybe instead of the pig valve this time she could get the plastic one, which would last longer. And he said something. He said her response was, Mrs. So-and-so, I've held your heart in my hands. Mm-hmm. I know what's best for it. Now, I, I've always loved that story for, for two reasons. It's very powerful. It's very poetic, right? Uh, but how, how are you can answer that, you know? It's and so I'm thinking yeah. about you on that airplane, saving a person's. You know, this this was an extraordinary surgeon who had a high uh, self self esteem, which he which was merited. He was an extraordinary man who had saved many lives, and I'm thinking about you on that airplane. You told two stories in the book. One about where you diagnose a heart attack and say, we've got to stop the plane. The other was, now the guy's got, you know, ate the wrong thing and he's fine or whatever it was. Uh, that's intoxicating, isn't it?
1: Well, I think that what I tried to get out of the book uh, was that you don't need a doctor to do this now. I mean, this, the, the individuals – I've had these three flight experiences. Uh, in fact, people think, well, maybe they shouldn't get on a plane with me because they might wind up having to have I don't know. a No, I, I, It cuts the other uh, but, way.
0: I think I'd like to <laughs> just have you along, you know. <laughs>
1: But you don't need me, because anybody, the flight attendant, another passenger, (laughs) one other really key thing here is we're talking about cheap chips, you know, Moore's Law, 50 years anniversary uh, a week ago, this is stuff that you can make for pennies, a dollar, you know, this is really cheap stuff, so the stuff that can be used to diagnose uh, anywhere 30,000 feet, and this includes, you know, many different devices, Um, you, you, you know, this is... Cheap stuff with algorithms that are software that will basically give the answer without any doctor so that another passenger or a flight attendant could do the same thing. And so I would never want to be coming out with, you know, I, I've held your heart in my hand and I, you know, those kind of, it's crazy because the stuff we're talking about uh, today is about uh, the fact that it is democratized. It's for anyone. It's for because we have this thing called machines, (laughs) computing, immense computing power and cheap chips, and you've got a recipe for a whole different look of medicine.
0: One of the things I loved in your book is uh, your thoughts on the stethoscope, which I think if you ask people to draw a doctor, you get a white coat and you get a stethoscope. Uh, Talk about the stethoscope. Well, that
1: is um, symbolic of the whole uh, change in medicine because we're at the 199 years of the stethoscope's invention, and it's the icon of medicine, and it is a total relic. It shouldn't be used. I haven't used a stethoscope in almost five years now, and I every patient I examine their heart, but I use a high-resolution ultrasound, which fits in the pocket, and uh, it is so much more uh, informative because. I can do see everything. You know, I can do the entire uh screening of a heart in a minute the same t- uh, time it takes to do an adequate um exam with the stethoscope. And here's the difference. Not only do you see every part of the heart, you are you know, not lub-dub, but you see everything. So you, you see the valves and the strength of the heart muscle and the thickness and the aorta and whether there's any fluid in the sac around the heart. You can even track the blood flow, everything. So you see all this stuff and it's recorded. It's digital. You're digitizing the patient's heart. Whereas the stethoscope, it is a stethophone. It doesn't scope into anything. It doesn't look into anything. And it's analog. There's it nothing recorded. And whatever, if it was recorded, it isn't worth much. So the reluctance to switch to um, this era of a new stethoscope, if you will, a real stethoscope, uh, rather than the stethophone, it's, it's all part of the uh, unwillingness to change uh, in medicine and, and, and moving to a digital uh, era.
0: But you're right that some doctors have mocked you for mocking the stethoscope, correct? Oh, sure.
1: Uh, and I get into that in the book. Uh, they, they feel that the stethoscope is sacred and uh, is sacrosanct and, you know, that nothing's ever going to be better than the stethoscope. Well, I have to also remind those people that uh, when Rene uh invented the stethoscope almost 200 years ago, it took 20 years for doctors to accept it, 20 years. And they, it was a this revolt. Can you imagine this having a, a war about this? <laughs> well, they said it was going to interrupt with their, you know, uh, the intimacy of their exam by having this equipment. Uh, it was going to be a terrible tax on doctors to have to learn what these sounds were all about. I mean, just amazing stuff. But not only that, Ross, but since, since uh, as an economist, you can get into this. In the United States alone, we do 130 million uh, ultrasound studies. A year, and that number keeps rising. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, in the hospital, most people, while they're in the hospital, at one point or other, they might well get an echocardiogram. It's the indication is the presence of a heart, you know. <laughs> and so you're talking about a hundred billion dollars a year uh, of charges for um, ultrasound studies. Well, you know, we've done work um, uh, in research to show. Uh, at scripts where you could probably get rid of 70% of these ultrasound studies by just incorporating this as part of the physical exam. So here is a tool that's been around now for some years, uh, but it isn't being used to any significant degree in this country uh, because it is a challenge to the incentives and the way that billing and reimbursement um, uh, proceeds uh, in, in the United States.
0: One of the other incentive problems uh that you talk about, which uh, was alarming and informative for me, was the uh medical imaging uh industry generally, not just ultrasound, but MRI uh, and uh, various other forms of mammography, et cetera. Basic things that, that take looks inside us. And I um you know, I've always thought how glorious those things are. Um you know, when you when you have a headache and you get an MRI and they tell you you don't have a tumor, it's extremely uh, comforting. Uh, and, you know, when I had my first one. I was excited to see that the economics part of my brain was, in fact, slightly larger than the other part. So that was, you know, I always wanted to be uh, feel good about that. But uh, on a more serious note, the a lot of the imaging that gets done is, is done for uh, defensive reasons, I assume, for legal reasons. And I never realized, and you point this out, dramatically the amount of radiation we get when we get those x-rays or uh, other types of scans and you argue very I think uh, convincingly that patients ought to be told when they get uh, imaged what the radiation exposure is
1: right well you know this is another one of these doctor orders where uh, I want you to go have this nuclear scan well nowhere uh, currently is it routine, uh, nor less practice, to say, um, I think, uh, you know, Mrs. Jones, you should have this scan, but I want you to know that it's the equivalent of having 2,000 chest x-rays, you know, and you know what Mrs. Jones would do? She would typically, once she gets that information, she'd say, I don't want any part of that scan. Yeah. And so, if you want to if you want to help people avoid radiation, the first step is uh, you know give them the information about what they're exposed to. But you know, it's amazing to me that this is the the lack of rise of patients to demand this information. Uh, it's just unfathomable. Well, it doesn't cross just,
0: doesn't cross our minds. I never yeah, I didn't, well, think, I didn't think it, about it. I think it, about it at the dentist when they put that lead sheet over you and, and they <laughs> and, and as you point out, it's just, getting a lot of uh, pediatric X rays for teeth is is probably a bad idea.
1: Oh, gosh. You know, that can be downstream, you know, decades later to have serious implications. But experts in this country, uh, and I'm certainly not an expert in radiation uh, hazards, but medical scans are thought to have induced 3 to 4% of the cancer that we have in this country. And, and we, in the United States, abuse medical scans. I mean, they, compared to anywhere else in the world, it's, you know, Far greater use uh, for some of the reasons that you 've already mentioned, so one of the first steps that could be done if there was a willingness, um, and that's again it 's all part of this um, no, it never never came up before because of deeply ingrained paternalism, but every patient should demand if they're going to have anything that's ionized radiation and that i mean ct nuclear PET scans, um, you know angiograms, any of those things. Uh, they better know how how many equivalent chest X-rays or the, the actual radiation term millisieverts, how much they're going to get exposed to. And just knowing that, uh, a lot of people wouldn't have the scans or we, they have one that didn't have a radiation uh, imposed.
0: And, of course, we don't give medical advice on this program. You should consult your own physician when making these decisions, but you should also be uh, – uh, proactive, And I think the other part of this, and we've talked about this many times on the program, is just the paternalism of the medical profession and the way that power flows right now is the doctor will often do a test on you and not tell you. Forget whether they're going to tell you that there's radiation involved or other uh, – that's just one dramatic example of potential future costs. They just, they just start doing the test. He said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing a test for such and such. I said, well, I didn't, I didn't give you permission. But that happens all the time, especially happens to pregnant women. Uh, I've talked about that on the program before. But I was sitting at the dentist uh, uh, a few years ago. I quit dentists after this experience. I quit this dentist. But the dentist started doing something in my mouth. I said, w- what are you doing? Oh, I'm checking for some kind of cancer. I said, I didn't <laughs> – I don't want it. I don't, I don't know what to- you
1: I had the same thing happen to me. Um, you know, I I went in the dentist. Uh, you know, maybe I was a little bit dehydrated, uh, a little cotton mouth, and um, you know, a little, I didn't even know, but he did a a brush biopsy of my tongue, and then I get a, a, a bill from the pathologist. Yeah. <laughs> for- you know, for you know, what was nothing, a, a, a couple hundred dollars. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I switched dentists too. This is that it, that kind of stuff is atrocious. Um, it, it shouldn't happen. And and you know, that's just all part of this kind of uh,
0: civil rights, medical civil rights. You know, but as, you know, as we, as, as you talk about in the book, in, in a way, it's up to us. Um, it's not always up to us. There's legal issues. There's sometimes regulatory issues. But sometimes just a little bit of. Um, of uh, backbone can make a difference. Uh, staying on this theme of paternalism for a little bit, uh, when you were first on the program, which I think was about two years ago, um, we talked about Twenty Three and Me, which had just uh, had started fairly recently at that point. They've since had some issues. Uh, talk about what happened to them with the FDA. It was the FDA right?
1: Well, yeah. So um, they had a collision with the FDA. Uh, I actually think Twenty Three and Me does a good job, and it's a bargain. Uh, it was for $99, the one thing that you could get that was unique was your genetics uh, with 30 different drugs that are in common use that have a s- important genetic signal as to whether you would respond or whether you'd have a serious side effect. It's hard to get that information otherwise, and it's very expensive. So um, I thought 23andMe uh, was great for that. I mean, there were other things that it provided, which perhaps were not um, terrific, but nonetheless, because um, 23 started getting into a, an aggressive marketing campaign, um, and at the same time they weren't responsive to FDA correspondence and communication, they were shut down. Uh, not a good idea to have a multimillion-dollar marketing campaign and, and not to respond to the FDA. So uh, now they're getting back up. Uh, they 've had They had eight hundred thousand people with their saliva you know DNA uh, that they 've analyzed it 's the largest uh, genetic bio repository in the world, and uh, they could have had millions in fact, they had their sites on ten million people that might have been right by now ha- having been held up by the fDA now for you know at least almost a couple of years, they probably would have been into many millions but nonetheless um I actually think Direct-to-consumer genomics is particularly fine as long as the data that's being generated uh, and returned to the patient and ideally owned by the patient um, is, is accurate and, you know, giving proper uh, validated interpretation. There are a lot of, you know, really shaky companies that are doing consumer genomics, Uh, that's a different story, but 23andMe was very forthright about how they analyzed, genotyped their data. And, uh, now another company just last week was announced, Color Genomics. I don't know if you saw that, Ross, but they're doing cancer sequencing of almost 20 genes like BRCA, breast cancer genes, BRCA 1 and 2, and, and many others that have familial cancer for $249. Which is an incredible bargain because just BRCA1 and 2 sequencing through a myriad was almost $4,000. So that's an, a new consumer genomics company, which is kind of following in the footsteps of 23Me in some respects. And we're going to see a lot more of this. And so 23Me was a front runner in the democratization of genomics. And what's interesting is, and as I pointed out in the book, is that the medical establishment did not like this. Not only the FDA, but the American Medical Association, all sorts of entities went against it because it was challenging the the fact that people could get their own DNA data, by the way, their own data, uh, without having to go to a doctor. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. They could actually, you know, uh, learn about themselves, get genetically oriented without a doctor's involvement. Isn't that something? Uh, And so – you know, fortunately, um, I think twenty three me will get back up, and we'll not just see these two companies that I've mentioned, but many more going forward.
0: Uh, talk about Theranos, which is a company I've been uh, keeping an eye on and with fascination uh, because of its um, well. There's going to be regulatory issues that that, um, that crop up everywhere in these kind of innovative uh, situations. Talk about what Theranos uh, is trying to do and what y- what you experienced when you went there.
1: Yeah, well, it's a very innovative, uh, way, uh, although the actual technology, um, hasn't been still disclosed as what it is. I'm assuming it's some type of microfluidics. Uh, but at any rate, you, you basically can get with a one droplet of blood, um, hundreds of, um, routine assays very inexpensively and quickly. And Theranos has signed on to put this, um, capability in all of the Walgreens drugstores around the country, although so far it's only in uh, the Phoenix area and then one in Palo Alto. So it hasn't really gone throughout the country as uh, so far as anticipated, but that is, I guess, in the works. Um, so this is kind of the creative destruction of lab medicine, uh, that you could do it at your drugstore, but I actually think it's just a way station to smartphone labs, and I've talked to Elizabeth Holmes, who's the CEO of Theranos, that why would you have to go to a drugstore when you can do this um, through a, a simple attachment, inexpensively, accurately through your phone? And she actually acknowledges that that. Uh, is going to happen in the future so they may be complementary ways for people who don't want to um, do this uh, on their own but uh, whether it's at the drugstore or whether it's uh, wherever you are uh, through your phone that you're attached to there's going to be new ways of doing labs the old lab medicine, which has been around for you know, 60, 70 years of going to the lab to get your all this blood drawn. Give up a bucket. Very high yeah, expense. They take a, they yeah. take a,
0: it's expensive <laughs> and it's really unpleasant because they have to take a lot because yeah. they have to do a lot of tests well, sometimes.
1: They, they put in a big needle in your arm and, it, you know, it doesn't feel good, but they take all these tubes of blood and then you can't get your results. You know, what is this thing? So that, that whole, um, that, that is an anachronism. It's it's going to go away quickly. And and you saw that with LabCorp's announcement where, they're, you know, you can order your own labs. That's just step one. How about always getting your results? If it's your blood or whatever
0: your test is, urine, whatever, why aren't you getting your results back? Yeah, aren't you entitled? Who paid for this Well, not me. That's the problem. That's another issue is the third party paid for it, and so therefore there's a presumption. You you, you really did pay for it. I paid for part of it uh, in different ways, physically, sometimes financially. No, I just had a physical uh, a couple months ago, and and there's always the blood work part of the physical, which I have to confess has gotten uh, more pleasant. The the needle is sharper. It's not as painful (laughs) as it was when I was – in 1960 when i was a 6 year old you know, the needles were different then they really were it's not just you get oh, sure. you get more mature at dealing with pain um, but it's it's no fun and and then what all inevitably happens is is that i i get no call from my doctor yeah. that's that's the good news go. that's the good news they didn't call me to say <laughs> i have got diabetes or whatever it is i just didn't get a call uh right. and, and my doctor office, which they're—he's great, and I, I like him a lot. I'm not complaining, but it's just interesting that you know they're—they're they're trying to. They've got a portal. I spent a lot of time the last time I was there trying to register for the portal. I haven't used it since I went there. It's complicated. They don't make it easy. I didn't think no. about it, but it should have been. I got an—I e- should have gotten an email at a minimum with my lab results. Even if it was two weeks later, but Theranos can give it to you. How long does it take? Well, they say twenty
1: minutes. Um, that's but an outrage. Twenty should be ten. <laughs> you know, that's I got that. You know, you can get it much faster, but unfortunately, they're not like the, the stores they have in Arizona. You have to send the sample to Palo Alto, so that doesn't that takes days. But you can, you like, if you you can get your glucose immediately um, if you're a diabetic, and you can do that through your phone now. Uh, and pretty soon you won't even have finger sticks for diabetics, you know, over the next few years. But the point is, is that you can do any uh, routine lab test through your phone. I mean, a great example, Russ, is in Rwanda, of all places, uh, 100% accuracy of diagnosing HIV and syphilis through a smartphone, which costs 50 cents, uh, added to the smartphone. And, um, it was, the results were back in 20 minutes. So, if you can do that in Rwanda for you know uh, pathogens uh, like
0: HIV, you can do, you name it, uh, in the United States for cheap, quickly, and accurately. So Theranos, as you point out, has not uh, revealed its um, how it does its tests, which is a natural impulse. But that has opened the door for LabCorp and others. They're they're the people they're trying to creatively destroy to say, oh, it's not reliable. We don't know. And it really reminds me of um of the sharing economy, Uber and Airbnb, where the existing special interests say, oh, this isn't safe, that needs regulation, et cetera. Uh of course that's what they're gonna say. They could be right sometimes. I'm not suggesting that that it's always true that the that the upstart the new business is always better. But it's pretty obvious that Theranos is cheaper, quicker, uh, and will totally destroy those companies if uh they're successful. And the thought that comes to mind is that for some people, just like some people use Uber, I was just in Israel. Tell it's uh, it's illegal to use Uber in Tel Aviv. Uh, I'm told there are 15 Uber drivers anyway. Uh, there should be probably 1,500, <laughs> but there are 15 people who who have you know you, you you press the button and you hope and they come because they're they're taking a chance that you're not a government uh, agent or a policeman trying to capture you. And similarly, uh, it'll be interesting to see if some of this technology, even if the existing competitors can stifle it or slow it down, people are going to want they – they want the knowledge. And uh, it's, some of it may happen anyway.
1: Right. And this sharing economy and this Uber example is coming to medicine big time. I mean you have now five different apps, uh, companies that you can touch the app and you can have a doctor come to your house. And one of them was started by an Uber co-founder and the the doctor comes in an Uber car and it costs between $49 and $99 for a visit. And it could be suturing, you know, it could be, it's not just, you know, hello, how are you? It's like whatever you need, anything that's short of having to go to an emergency room uh, or a regular medical consult. So we're seeing uh, the same on demand. I want what I want when I want it mentality which is across the board, because it's the mobile device that has driven that. And you know, why would you want to try to hail a cab or find a call the yellow cab when you can just touch your phone, and then you have this much better experience uh, with dealing with an Uber. Driver, so you know this is coming to medicine in a major way. Um, It's of course telemedicine, where you don't have to have the doctor come to your house. You can just you know see the doctor and and have the exchange. And it's not just as I mentioned earlier. It's not just a uh, exchange of talk, talk, talk. It's actual data exchange. Now, here are my blood pressures. Here are my here's my exam of my child's eardrum or whatever it is. So um, this is a very different look. This is the epitome of how medicine gets democratized again, that mobile device is center stage and is really it's a it's the driver of this
0: yeah that's um it, it's fascinating a question I had while I was reading that part of the book is that you know my uh my dryer in my house was making a horrifying noise this week, so I called a repair person to come out and he charged me. $59 just to come out just to just, oh, yeah. to, just to come sure. to the house and then fortunately he had the part with him and the repair wasn't too onerous and the total fee was was pleasantly reasonable but how can a doctor c- come out for $49 what kind of doctors are interested in tele-consulting? Uh, are they doing it out of as a is is it the profit motive is it They're excited about the technology. Is it they can't get a job in a regular practice, so this is what they're doing? Um, Oh, no, no, no. These are amazingly well-qualified doctors. None of them do this
1: full-time. They're doing it on the side. But um, what's interesting is they don't get paid – a lot of times they're getting paid by the hour and this is just the company's, you know, the beginning when they're getting hatched and they want to start to get the buzz out there so they're yeah. taking the hit financially. Th- these prices won't last, but they are the way to get um, the word out that, oh, my gosh, I get can reputation. get reputation. Uh, yeah. yeah, and, and they, there, are a lot of leading medical center docs that are doing this. Some of them are doing it illegally. You know, it's kind of like those Uber drivers yeah. in Israel. They're they're not supposed to provide medical services through their contract with their you know health system, but nonetheless, they're uh, they're lured to this because this is where medicine's going. It's out of it's you know traditional uh, icons and brick and mortar. It's it's actually you know the, the return of the house call um, and all these things that you can do when you when you're there that you couldn't do before. And by the way, you don't need all this stuff where you go to the clinic and you wait in the office for an hour on average. Uh, and you have, uh, you know, someone come in the room to do your vital signs and all these extra people, all this expense, you cut all that stuff
0: out. So economically it's very attractive. <clears throat> yeah. By the way, I don't really know if there's anybody in Tel Aviv driving an Uber car. It's probably just a folktale and I want to get him in trouble. So I forget I ever said that. Um, <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> now, uh, I want to ask – I want to shift gears a little bit, uh, talk about something that comes up in in a lot of uh, detail in the book, which is the promise and perils of big data. And listeners to this program know that I'm skeptical to some degree about big data and its potential. Obviously, it has potential. It's easily misused. I often – I've been quoted on the program. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I often say that um, epidemiology is an intellectual cesspool. And uh, people get offended when I say that, but I say that based on the idea that most, I think most, findings of epidemiological studies relationship in a population between, say, drinking and health, drinking and cancer, um, various uh, fat, uh, carbohydrates in your diet, that there are often studies on both sides. We don't really have a lot of information about what's reliable a finding about coffee being good for you will be reversed six months later by a giant study that says it's bad for you, then it's good for you. And um, it reminds me a lot of macroeconomics where we have a lot of variation across the population. We have a lot of complexity and we don't have access to all the data. We have the data that comes in the survey, say, or that the government collects in the case of economics. And the result is a highly unreliable source of information. The revolution you're talking about where smartphones sample people's uh, genetic code or, or their vital signs in real time, which is so much better than saying, I have this pain, and then you go in and they don't, it doesn't manifest itself, so they can't diagnose it. But if we have a lot of data about what's going on a lot of time, there is the potential for actually discovering things not just about the human body and its relationship to other things generally, but also about my body. So, what do you think the prospects are for that revolution, and uh, talk about the privacy issues that you do in the book, which are the peril uh, among among the perils?
1: Yeah, I think the privacy um, is my biggest concern uh, for holding up this revolution in medicine because if people 's medical data uh, are put out you know, internet or brokered and sold. Uh, that's not gonna work, uh, you know, with re-identification, uh, uh, concerned. So, um, that's why I think the critical step is that each individual has to own their data. It has to shift the ownership model. Uh, and all their medical data. And by the way, wouldn't that be a flip when you, when you talk to the doctor and, and you say to the doctor, would you like to to see my data? You know, yeah. that's where we are eventually going to go because we're, I already have a lot of patients who, by the way, say, would you like to see all my blood pressure or my heart rhythm? You know, I've already seen where this is headed. So uh, privacy, security of data, which we are doing nothing to, to advance. Uh, medical um, wise today is uh, has to get on track, but as far as the big data thing, um, you know obviously there 's a lot of noise and how do you get signals and I have a whole chapter about that, but what I want to get into the promise of that, assuming we can um, come up with the right privacy security using technology in many respects and legislation that is critical. If we can get over the privacy hump, then we have the ability to preempt illness. Because it's not big data in the, like you're, I I, I like the point you made about epidemiology uh, at the population level. It's big data per individual. We're digitizing human beings. So if I am getting real-time data uh, about you for a condition, let's say asthma, and I'm getting your lung function, I'm getting your nitric oxide in your breath, uh, I'm getting all your vital signs continuously, your uh, air quality, pollen count, I mean, you name it, I'm getting all this data about you without you knowing it. I mean, that is, you're collecting it through your phone. I mean, you know you're doing it, but it's seamless. Right. So you don't have to take any, yeah, so you know you're doing it because you don't want to ever have an asthma attack again or you don't want your child to ever have an asthma attack yet. And then this big data about you is getting all integrated and processed and analyzed, and telling you a text or a uh, voice uh, message. You know, uh, Russ, you're going to have an asthma attack uh, if you don't take your the you know a couple puffs of this particular inhaler, because we can detect that you're starting to get early signs of bronchospasm that you don't know, you you, you don't feel it, you don't hear it, and so that's where we're headed in medicine when you have big data and you're having it properly processed, and that is enormous potential, and that has nothing to do with, you know, uh, the population level, but when you have so much data about any condition for hundreds of thousands, millions of people, then you get even smarter than the machine learning on the individual basis.
0: That raises the question which you allude to in the book. You talk about the the driverless car, uh, which I'm We've talked about it here a number of times. I'm very excited about it. I think it's inevitable. I think it's coming. And, of course, it threatens the livelihood of a bunch of people who currently are driving taxis or who make cars. So they're going to emphasize the dangers of that. Uh, Similarly, these algorithms and and machine learning you're talking about threaten to put doctors out of business, uh, interpreting X-rays, as you said, correlating events with the onset of an asthma attack. Uh, What are we going to need them for down the road? What are they... um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, the doctorless patient concept that I
1: have tried to advance. Of course, it doesn't go over too well with a lot of doctors. Yeah, but uh, it isn't. Tr- it isn't. It's semi-autonomous. You know, it's it's not like the driverless car where you know who would have ever thought that would go advance so quickly and and be so safe. And as I'm sure you've seen. Ross, there's even a call for
0: banning human drivers because of the safety of driverless cars. I right, know it'll, uh, it'll get to that eventually. Yeah, someday. I mean, that, who would that's be so be reckless? Who would be so reckless as to teach a child how to drive a car? I mean, it's, it's <laughs> right, right. It's like right. It's, it's dangerous. It's like it, just like giving yeah. them a drink. It just it's just only bad yeah. things can come from it.
1: Right, so there you go, and so now the idea is where does that, how does it, what's the parallel in medicine? And the way I see it is doctors are essential to treatment, they're essential to have oversight of the data, of the whether it's the diagnostic data or the monitoring data, the patients are going to be largely in charge of their diagnosis and monitoring data for, for most common you know, non-very serious conditions. They're going to be the, kind of ruling the roost for collecting that data, but they still are going to need doctors who have the experience and the wisdom to provide guidance for them and communicate and help them and you know provide empathy too because a lot of times it's going to be someone who has a, a, a ill condition. So that is the morph here of the doctor's role in a partnership model where um, the patient is generating a large amount of this data the bulk, dominant portion, but the doctor is critical to to put that in context for what to do. Does it need treatment? Do we need to have you know additional whatever? So that I think is going to be a, a
0: reset going forward. And many specialties presumably would not be compensated at their current level in such a world. Well, you know, actually, I think this is the problem
1: today. Doctors are very busy. And they're doing a lot of things in the diagnosis, the ordering tests and monitoring mode that they don't need to do. And computing can get much more uh, active in this uh, arena. And, and, you know, this is where algorithms and, and uh, cognitive computing can make a big difference. But if you were just being a guidance person as a doctor and you spent your time doing this thing, which is so vital um, – you know, this is, ulcer was diagnosis, 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 you know, in the future it's treatment, 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 but this I think is gonna be welcome change because it's gonna decompress doctors' uh, busy life and shift more responsibility to the individuals who have the most vested interest in their own health. That'd and be they you have and this me. new, <laughs> yeah, you and me, and the wisdom of the body, you know, we have known about the wisdom of the body, of how the body is for regulating glucose and sodium and uh, thirst and hydration. But there's a new external wisdom of the body, the data on your smartphone. And that's going to make a lot of people a lot smarter about how to deal with their health. And they're
0: still going to need doctors to help uh, advise them too. Well, it's interesting because I wouldn't say that empathy is necessarily the trait that currently is at the front of the list of traits that gets people into medical school so it would be there will be a lot of changes some of them cultural some of them practical like uh we're talking about i suspect in you know in say 30 maybe 20 years from now i hope econ talk is still available people can look back on this i hope i'm still here uh people will look I hope back so on too. it people <laughs> look back on it i'll be 80 in 20 years i don't know if i'll still be the host but at least i hope it's still online uh people be new able- 50 you know be alright <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping people look back on this and say, wasn't that interesting? They actually thought that or whatever it is. Uh, but I suspect that people going into medical school 10, 20 years from now will have different expectations about their role and their compensation. Uh, although I do think that the AMA and others will fight very hard to keep the system as as similar to what it is now. It's just the nature of it's- oh, you're right about that. No question about it, and that's the sort of thing where you don't get a fix
1: for this from the inside. It has to come from either the patient's unrest the 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 public or you know particular forces out there that have muscle like large employers with hundreds of thousands of employees that say, "We're not going to take it anymore but it it won't happen. This change that's in the cards that is. Unquestionably, going to occur over time, but it won't happen, you know, anywhere soon, anytime soon, uh, if it's up to the medical community itself.
0: Uh, do you see a world? Uh, a good friend of mine's an emergency room doctor, and of course, that's a very—you know—he sees everything from sore throats to horrible, tragic situations. Some of those, by the way, will disappear uh, with driverless cars. I hope. Uh, uh, somebody was telling me the other day that. The biggest challenge of a world of driverless cars is there won't be so many organs for um, for transplanting because there won't be so many fatal uh, car accidents, Mm. and that's Mm. you know we'll figure out how to make those. I hope and assume we will. Uh, That 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 I'd love to. That would be great if that was our biggest problem. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But you know, I think about so much of what he encounters is not amenable to an algorithm. It's not just diagnosing whether this person's having a heart attack or not. It includes. You know, serious surgery that's not, um, it's not replicable. But I wonder if there's other surgery coming that could be done robotically. You know, my, my fantasy uh, version, science fiction version of this uh, is, you know, you, you have a toothache. You go into the booth. Uh, they, the booth diagnoses the, the smart, the machine learning or whatever it is. And the, the AI in the booth tells you that you've got to you need a root canal. You open your mouth. The machine does the root canal and you walk out. It does it perfectly and you walk out and you're fine. Mm-hmm. Similarly, uh, you've got to have your prostate removed. And if we haven't figured out by then uh, how to genetically alter people so that they don't have a prostate or that it's replaced in utero with a plastic prostate that doesn't you know, get cancer, uh, that your prostate could imaginably be removed without much uh, surgical intervention. Is that, a, is that ever going to happen? That's a good question. Uh, I think that's pretty
1: far off. Um, I, I, you know, someday. But that, as opposed to so many of the things that we're talking about that are potentially here and now or already uh, in existence, that's you know decades away. Uh, you you bring up some really good ideas there. <laughs> uh, I mean, haven't just seen the movie Ex Machina. I mean, yeah. that helps you, you know, you develop, you let your imagination go wild. But yes. Uh, there's there's certainly um, a lot of um, artificial intelligence and of course robotics going to be coming into medicine uh, as well and uh, it's already happened but it's so far a lot of the robotic stuff um, like the da Vinci robot for prostate surgery and gynecologic surgery and whatnot it hasn't really been shown. To be better than conventional surgery, but it's marketed heavily, it's, it's very expensive to buy the equipment, so all these things, everything we've talked about uh, here, Russ, has to be validated. Uh, before it'll be accepted, but would it be nice for men not to be born with a uh, with a prostate? Sure. Uh, can we do genome editing now to do all sorts of corrective things um, that we never would have envisioned would be possible? You know, some years ago, sure. So eventually, these things will take hold in in many shapes or form. But they've got to be at some point clearly proven that they are better than the way things were done uh, in the in you know the state of the art at that time.
0: So. Let's close with uh, just some optimism or pessimism. Uh, you've, you're an optimist, I would say, as am I. Yeah. And, yeah. But you've also been confronted when you write a book like this uh, or when you go out and speak about it and you write about this in the book Some People not only are skeptical, they're angry. Uh, it's threatening. Uh, they, their natural self-interest encourages them to see you as dangerous, not just uh, misguided that you're harmful to patients, that this revolution that you're talking about is, is going to be uh, bad for people, that they don't, they're not capable of dealing with these, these issues that you're trying to give them power over, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in the short time, and time moves quickly today, in the short time that you've been speaking and writing about this, do you see the beginnings of a change of sympathy for your views, or is it mainly hostile? and how no, do you I feel the future is coming. I see a lot of sympathy.
1: Um I I am amazed actually um that uh so much is moving towards uh, democratizing medicine, which is all I ask for. Um and and research to, to get the, uh, the the um the book done which is um we have this unique capability and uh although there are naysayers and although there're challengers uh they're not so hostile They, I think, um, realize that so many of these things are are the path of the future of medicine. And there's resistance for various reasons, such as financial ones and entrenchment, and even lack of knowledge in in many areas, like genomics that we touched on or the use of of sensors and things. But uh, I I don't think there's nearly as much adversity uh, as one would anticipate, and certainly much less than I had expected. So I'm gratified for that. And, um, you know, I think that most people realize that uh, this is the best thing that could happen. We're in an economic upheaval in American medicine. We've got a solution here that is tenable. Uh, and it's putting people in charge. They want, they want their data. They should own it. And they can function so much better with the amount of data that's going to be flowing through their devices. Um, so let's let's open things up, and I, I don't think um, there's going to be nearly as much um, of that type of
0: uh, resistance or adversarial response as, as you might have anticipated. My guest today has been Eric Topol. Eric, thanks for being part of econ Talk. I uh, enjoyed it, Russ. Thank you. This is econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.